All right, we are back. We're going to defer some obituaries I did want to talk about. We haven't done that in a while, and there was a couple that I think just cry out for commentary. So we're going to defer those um, till mid-segment, I guess you might say, and devote our first part of the segment here to my neighbor. We were talking out uh, the, the other day while we were raking leaves and tending to our yards, and I discovered that uh, my neighbor, James Mangold, has a great deal of knowledge about things archaeologic, and I thought, perfect, come on the show, let's talk archaeology. So, he's here to do exactly that today. Welcome to Radio Parallax, James. Thank you for having me. Now, um, we started out with the Indiana Jones theme song, and I think we should start out by noting that, <laughs> as you told me in the past, that archaeologists just hate Indiana Jones. <laughs> I don't know if we hate him so much as, it, it, you know, it's the common person that all archaeologists are compared to, and most archaeologists would tell you that it's not a very good comparison. There, there aren't too many folks, hopefully none in the world, that do what he did. <laughs> so the bullwhips are right out of the whole archaeologic digs in your experience. Yeah, I've got a hat that kind of looks like his, but I, I do, do not have the bullwhip. Yeah, he does seem like, uh, I guess you pointed out, just more of a, more of a looter than, in, than an academic. Yeah, he's, I would say, an educated looter, you know, goes to interesting foreign countries and through caves and grabs other people's stuff and returns it to his university, and that's generally not what we do. Well, we're not, we're not operating out of Yale, I guess. I'm sure if you look back east of the Ivy League schools, I'm sure they have all kinds of loot from everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, an older generation of archaeologists, that, that may be a little bit uh, more true than it is today. Yeah. Well, talk about archaeology in the real world. I mean, we, we sort of think of what on a late night television and watching people digging up bones and African stuff, but uh, you're dealing here in the New World with uh, native tribes and such things and how that may just get discovered during construction sites and the like? Yeah, absolutely. Fifty years ago, uh, most archae- well, all archaeologists were um, either working for a university or were kind of avocational folks that were interested in archaeological sites and did it more as a hobby. But um, with environmental laws that came about in the 60s, um, you know, you have Air Quality, Water Quality, um, Endangered Species Act, and a part of that wave of environmental laws in the 60s were laws and regulations that required the consideration of cultural resources. And so since that time, the majority of people that are working in the field of archaeology are doing so um, on behalf of agencies and companies to comply with those regulations that came about in the 60s. And you and I were talking, and I've never talked about this on the show, but I I guess this is the day. Um, (laughs) When they were digging the BART um, parking lot and station down in Fremont, where I grew up, there was sort of a natural... um, estuary, a little path that I guess in other times had been flooded, and there was quite an Indian encampment, I gather, uh, around that. And when they were digging they and putting the roads in, they came across some grave sites. And of course, being one of the neighborhood kids, uh, I got called in to go take a look and like, oh my God, there's a skeleton over here. And so we, we, we were, you know, we, to, to quote, preserve it, unquote, we dug it up and, and took it home. But we did call up San Francisco State, and they did actually send an archaeologist out. And I think they did do some meaningful work in trying to, to outline what was there and, uh, you know, how the people lived. So I, I guess it wasn't, strictly speaking, grave robbing. 
<laughs> I like to <laughs> yes. think so anyway. And, and you know, that that is uh, more common in days gone by, that it's part of American culture. You find that, for example, the Forest Service, they used to advertise, come out to the Forest Service and collect arrowheads with your kids. I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's a part of American culture from years gone by. Yeah. As time goes by, I think that archaeologists are better at communicating the need to leave things where you find them and that... Artifacts are not only important to us because of the artifacts themselves, but also very important because of the context that they come from, that we can learn as much, if not more, from the context that the artifact is in. And so it's very important that they remain in situ and that they're discovered there. Um, And if they're excavated, it's done by an archaeologist and not Doug at the BART station. I got to say, considering that me and the neighborhood kids, I think probably did a better job than the bulldozers that went through on behalf of BART because there is what used to be a nice little area where you could walk around and see where you you can imagine encampments and there were probably some native walnuts that had probably been there for centuries. Uh, It's all office buildings now. It's all been completely torn up. And I guess, I don't know whether... Um, this happening before these laws passed would have made any difference because they they were determined to put roads through there, houses through there, buildings through there, and and the BART station. Yeah, and and you see that today. I mean, cultural resources laws and regulations um, do not require folks to not touch anything. Mm -hmm. It's a a process. It requires, Mm -hmm. in terms of a, a federal context at least, it requires an agency or a company to follow a process. And as long as that process is followed, then the outcome is not necessarily that a site is preserved. Mm-hmm. A, a site can be impacted, moved, ultimately destroyed if the process is followed appropriately and the site is mitigated in some way. We were talking in preparation for having this little chat about uh, some myths you might want to expose. You mentioned there's this myth out there of the noble savage. Yeah. In, in anthropological discourse, there's this concept of the noble savage, which is basically the, the common conception that uh, not only Native Americans, but um, indigenous folks in other countries as well, basically uh, lived in a utopia. They all got along, they <laughs> ate great food, they never fought, um, and archaeological data um, shows that that's just not the case. We have lots of uh, incidents of prehistoric violence in, in California in particular. Uh, really? I, th- I thought the California uh, Native Americans were sort of thought of as not like the ones out in the plains riding horses and killing, looting. Well, they might not have had horses and teepees the same, but um, they were certainly not uh, peaceful. And what you find is that over time, as uh, people are successful, they reproduce, they get uh, more numerous, and they uh, expand in territory. As those territories run out and people become circumscribed, um, they start to... Um, work through the resources that are available to them in that space. And at some point, if they're still successful, they run out of space, they run out of resources. And so it's a choice of, I can go and take some neighbor's territory and and take some of their resources, or I can stay here and and eat um, less and less desirable foods. And so often the choice was, I'm going to go and take some neighbor's uh, resources. And so you see um, plenty of instances of um, skeletal remains that have um, projectile points in them. Oh, wow. That are in uh, someone's back and someone's head and um, lots of cases of prehistoric violence in California. Wow. 
I guess I, I subscribed to that myth, at least in terms of California and reading about the Ohlones and things like that. I, I just was not aware it was, uh, well, I mean, it makes sense. It's pretty universal, I guess, James. This is, wherever you, everywhere you go in the world, you're going to find the same, these same issues. It is. And it's not to say that, that violence was the norm. It, it may have been the exception, but the noble savage is, is definitely <laughs> a myth. I read somewhere that here in California that they didn't grow crops like we think of them traditionally, but they more or less worked the the acorns, the oak trees in California like like a like a perennial crop, and this was a mainstay of their food. That's correct. Yeah, uh, California prehistorically had the highest density of non-agricultural folks anywhere in the world. Um, wow! And that, by and large, is thought to be because of the acorn that uh, California had regular plentiful acorn crops um, and that what you see over time in California in a general sense is a move away from large game, which is a preferable food source, to acorns. And the idea is that uh, as folks hunted uh, large game, primarily deer, things like that, that they would have to switch to a less desirable food. And in the case of California, that was the acorn. And while it was less desirable in terms of its health benefits, it was more desirable in the sense that it was a more regular source of food and it allowed populations to increase. Well, I, I got to ask you, is there is any group that does any kind of gleaning of acorns? Because when I walk to the UC Davis campus to do this show, sometimes in the, during the year, the ground is covered in acorns. And I think they just probably wind up in the landfill. I think that there are still a very few uh, native practitioners that kind of know how to take a raw acorn and turn it into something that you'd want to consume, which is itself quite a lengthy process. If you chew on an acorn raw, it's pretty, 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 pretty nasty. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of tannins uh, in acorns, make them very bitter, um, and that what's, um, you know, much higher processing costs for an acorn relative to an animal. It's, it's pretty labor intensive in terms of getting those tannins out of the acorn and making it palatable. So there might be a few folks that are um, in that category that still know how to do that, but you're not going to get anybody that's going to come clean up Davis for you. When I was a student here at UCD back in the Paleolithic era, there was uh, we used um, the olive crop mainly as slingshot ammunition, and these days some wiser folk have gathered up all of those uh, uh, campus um, olive trees and produce a really high quality olive oil. So maybe we can do something like that with the acorns. I haven't had any acorn bread myself, but talking to those who have, it's not the tastiest of foods, so you might want to reconsider. Well, how about, how about for game, giving it to, like, uh, squirrels and, uh, and and deer? Inmates. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Miller suggests inmates. <laughs> sure, you could do that. I don't know that you'd have very happy inmates, but... <laughs> well, I'm thinking the deer and squirrels. I do I do notice the squirrels are pretty happy chewing on them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, something may come of this. We'll have to put our heads together. Well, James, I'm sure there's a great deal we could talk about in the world of archaeology, which I do find quite quite interesting. And uh, I'd say come on back next couple months uh, and, and share some more knowledge. Thanks for having me. All right, how much time we got, Mr. Millen? About eight minutes? Okay. Should note that James is not the only neighbor I've been speaking to uh, in in the past couple days. Kathy, who also lives across the street from me in East Sacramento, called me to tell me that um, 
Well, that story of the claw, which we reported on on, uh, on this program at great length, because even though it's a small thing, I find it to be just emblematic of what can sometimes be wrong with local government. We reported how in, in Sacramento, the powers that be decided they could save a lot of money by not picking up all the leaf litter that's out in the street, and they were going to give everybody little cans and make people put their leaf litter in the cans, even though the cans don't hold nearly enough, et cetera, et cetera. This passed by a 1% voter margin last November, despite the fact that it, uh, after a lot of lobbying by the city, the B got on board, the Sacramento News and Review got on board, and there seemed to be virtually no organized opposition. We did bring one of the few spokes people who uh, was opposed to Measure T on on the show. Well, I was curious to find out that uh, Kathy did some digging and found out that even though Measure T passed, there's also an implementation of Prop uh, 218, which I don't probably remember the details of. But at any rate, if if enough people write and protest the proposed rate changes that go along with some of uh, this reorganization, uh, if apparently if a majority protests, they're stuck and they have to do something else to uh, implement it. Well, the only way one would know this was even the case is if one read the fine print of one of their waste bills on page three where it was buried. Uh, it tells people that you have to, uh, to, to, to write in, include your property address and your parcel number, which of course everybody has just at their fingertips. And, to quote the piece, if written protests are filed for a majority of the affected parcels, the proposed rate changes will not be implemented. What a fast one they have pulled. But, fortunately, Radio Parallax will continue to follow <laughs> the, the machinations of some of our local politicians and utility administrators. You know, I know we have listeners overseas, and, and I think this is kind of a universal thing, folks. I think whether you're living in, in Birmingham, uh, uh, England, or uh, Zagreb, Croatia, or Hong Kong, a lot of these same issues are going to affect your life. But I had to laugh in regards to all this discussion about picking up leaves with, uh, with page B3 of Wednesday's Sacramento Bee, noting that Sacramento trees are rated among the top 10 in the United States. Article by Matt Weiser, who continues to be a fine reporter. Notes that Sacramento's tree canopy has been named one of the nation's 10 best urban forests. The distinction was announced Thursday by American Forests, a nonprofit group based in Washington. That city also made the top 10 list, along with Austin, Texas, Charlotte, North Carolina, Denver, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, New York, Seattle, and Portland. Peace quotes Ray Trethaway, executive director of the Sacramento Tree Foundation and a former city council member, saying it's a great recognition of what Sacramentans have contributed for decades. There's currently an effort to plant 30,000 more trees in the city in 12 months with a deadline on March 7th. We, we hope they make it, and we hope that after all these trees are planted and they go to dropping their leaves, the city will then pick them up. Because, you know, trees are great. You live in a nice town like uh, Davis or parts of Woodland or where I live in Sacramento, and it, this tree canopy, this urban forest, is a wonderful addition to your life. But come the fall, the leaves come off. All right. Let's, uh, let's close the show with a rather inspirational obituary. And no, it's not the late, great Stan Musial, although we do plan to talk about uh, him with Sean Minton. An example of... A stand-up guy. 
he appeared by all accounts to be a very satisfied human being and a real mensch, and hopefully we'll uh, talk about that with Sean. But no, I want to talk about uh, someone who I, I didn't know anything about until her passing, but I uh, was quite, quite taken by what I read. The person in question is Beat Gordon, B-E-A-T-E. And in the moments we have left, I'm going to quote from her obituary in The Economist. So the magazine, drafting a constitution isn't something one does every day. It took Washington, Franklin, and company several months to achieve that steamy summer in Philadelphia in 1787. When Beat Sarota was roped in to do it in chilly, ruined Tokyo in the spring of 1946, she was amazed. She was no lawyer. She was 22 and only just an American citizen. Her idea of fun was going out every night. She had tagged on to General MacArthur's occupation army mostly to find her parents, whom she left in Japan before the war. Her job, which she did very well, was to translate Japanese. But suddenly, there she was, called in with two dozen men to write, in deepest secrecy, the basic law for post-war Japan, and do it in a week. Said her colleagues, and you just have to love this, Beat, you're a woman. Why don't you do the bit about women's rights? She responded, wonderful, I'd love to, and then realized she had no idea how. It's a hell of a story. Beat Gordon had seen very clearly how women were treated in Japan. From the age of 5 to 15, she lived there while her father, a concert pianist from Ukraine, taught at the Imperial Academy. She was, by the way, able to find them after the war. But imagine, here it is in 1946, at age 22, she's driving around Tokyo in a jeep, borrowing other countries' constitutions from war-battered libraries. Rattling through them, she produced what became Article 24 of the Japanese Constitution. To quote, Marriage shall be based only on the mutual consent of both sexes and shall be maintained through mutual cooperation with the equal rights of husband and wife as a basis. With regard to choice of spouse, property rights, inheritance, choice of domicile, divorce, and other matters pertaining to marriage and the family, laws shall be enacted from the standpoint of individual dignity and the essential equality of the sexes. Here's the part I like best. The economist notes there was plenty more as she warmed to her mission. Women's right to paid work, to custody of children, to equal education. Much of it was stripped out because it made the men's eyes water on the American side as much as the Japanese. A kindly colonel pointed out to her that she'd put in far more rights than were in America's constitution. She fired back that that wasn't hard. Hey, what's most amazing of all, Beat Gordon lived out the rest of her life, and uh, because the post-war work had been so secret, she never mentioned her work on the constitution until 1995 when she finally wrote a memoir. She said that when it was all said and done, she did not think that Article 24 was the most important clause in Japanese post-war constitution. That honor, she said, belonged to Article 9, under which Japan renounced war and embraced peace. Hers was second. You know, I love doing this show because of the things I learn. And I certainly hope that as listeners, you feel the same way. Our thanks to archaeologist and my neighbor, James Mangold. James will be back in the future, as well as... And our thanks to producer Edward McMillan, who I believe will also be back on the program in the future. That may be contingent upon whatever feminist selection he chooses for our bumper music to go out of today's program with. So, Girls, Girls, Girls is out? Way out. 
You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. Hopefully with Lawrence Wright to talk about his fascinating book on L. Ron Hubbard. We'll see you then. Either way.